All right, well, we get to continue in our study of Hebrews. If you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I mentioned at the very start of this with the introduction that really the, the author is trying to lift the name of Jesus up, that, that he's on sort of a higher plane, and I would, I would hope that, that you would have a higher view of Jesus, and, uh, and uh, hoping that's already starting to happen. As you, as you see what the author's been doing of, of lifting his name up on high. And last week, we really started a really amazing section of Scripture, uh, verses 4 to 14, where the author begins to deal with the subject of angels. And we talked a lot about uh, angels. I had a great reply from someone watching online last week about this being a helpful topic for somebody that they, uh, they, they were concerned about. And they said, they need to watch this because um, there's so many different ideas about angels and so many people that can say they have... Uh, sort of different, you know, uh, uh, avenues into the angelic realm, and they talk to angels, and they listen to angels, and all these things. So, so hopefully we, we gave a proper introduction into uh, angelology, and you feel a little more secure in terms of what the Bible has to say about uh, angels. But the author's going to talk a lot about angels, not just in verses 4 to 14, but he kind of goes on to talk about them even in, in chapter 2. But, but here specifically, he's setting out to prove that Jesus is better than angels. That's really his whole point, because in the Jewish mind, the, 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 the angels were the, the highest beings next to God. You had God, and then you had angels, and so they were highly revered in the mind of the, the Jew, and also primarily because they were mediators of the old covenant. Uh, the Jewish uh, person would look at that old covenant and say, that is such an important thing. God established that, and it came at the hands of, of angels. And we looked at a couple verses. If you remember Stephen's uh, speech at the end of that, he sort of indicted them for not listening to the law, which was given to them, delivered to them by angels. And then we looked at this verse. I have it for you. It's Galatians three nineteen. Paul wrote this, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So, so however that happened, we don't have a great description in Scripture about how that happened, but we, we're told that it did. So angels were, were part of, of, of the mediating company between God and between men when it, when it came with the uh, Old Covenant, in terms of the Old Covenant. So this writer, if he's trying to show ultimately that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, better than the old covenant, then he's also going to have to show them that Jesus is better than angels. And so really this is part two of what we started last week. Jesus is better than angels, part two. So uh, we're, we're going to look at this. Uh, we saw basically some, some highlights. He's going to highlight five ways in which Jesus is better than angels, and we really just looked at the first. But in this passage, he uh, proves it from seven Old Testament passages doesn't choose the New Testament as his proof text because they would reject that, wouldn't they? Uh, he said instead chooses the Old Testament, proving to them uh, from these seven verses that Jesus is better than, than angels. And I should add this. I didn't have really time to add and elaborate much, but another reason we believe Paul did not write this letter to the Hebrews is because Paul, when he quotes the Old Testament, he quotes the Hebrew Old Testament. But this author doesn't do that. So you might be wondering, well, what does this author do then? He quotes the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? Well, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So at, at this point in time, you know, many of the people were, in the world were, were speaking Greek. And so 70 elders got together. They decided to translate the entire Old Testament into to Greek. And this author, when he quotes, quotes from the Septuagint. 
Even as I looked up these verses for my study, they weren't exactly the same. I had to look up the Septuagint version. Um, now, you might be saying, oh, so there's different versions of the Bible. It's not a different meaning. It's not a different purpose. It has no different direction. But there's just slight variations in words and sometimes things that are, that are added or, or highlighted that we see in the Septuagint. So this author tran- uh, uh, quotes always from the Septuagint. So it's one of the reasons we don't believe it's Paul. In any case, we looked uh, last week at those first two Old Testament verses that were given to us, and also he used those two verses to support his first point, and that is Jesus has a better name. Do you remember that? He has a better <coughs> name. That's in verses 4 to 5. Just look at it just by way of review. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now those two quotes there, Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14, are, are really there to give us this rhetorical question, to which of the angels did he ever say? And the answer is obviously, well, to no angel. To no angel did, did God ever say, you are my son. They're generically referred to as sons, but no angel ever had the name, the title of, of son. Jesus, this verse tells us, obtained that name through inheritance. Remember, he is the heir of all things. Okay, well, Psalm 2-7, that first verse that's mentioned there, Psalm 2-7, is a messianic psalm. It prophesies that a future Davidic king would inherit the nations. They would rule over the, uh, the world. And really, if you think about it, it fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. The promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Jacob way back in, in Genesis chapter 12, right? And in you, right? In you, in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how in you? Well, because one of the, their seed would bless the entire world, and that would be ultimately a Jesus. But Psalm 2-7, that's what's quoted there, you are my son, today I've begotten you, is referring uh, to the appointing of a king. And he says, today, today I've appointed you. So in Christ's resurrection and his ascension, the decree by God that he would be son, that was fulfilled. And, and Paul verifies that in Acts 13, 33. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So Paul verifies that fact. Now the second verse that's mentioned there, 2 Samuel 7, 14, that comes straight from the Davidic covenant. That's where God uh, excuse me, makes a promise to David and his heritage through the prophet Nathan that there will always be a ruler to sit on the throne. And in 2 Samuel 7, 16, this is really where it comes to a head. It says, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So God is going to do this because, and there's the quote you have there, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He will establish that forever for ultimately the one who would be uh, the, the, the ruler, one in the line of uh, King David. So what you see from those two verses is that the, the, the writer didn't randomly search in the Old Testament for verses that maybe mentioned the son. Well, that, that was, I'll take that one and I'll take that one. He chose these two verses specifically because they refer to kingship. Do you see that? Royalty. It applies to Jesus because he fulfills the, the covenant promise. He's always going to reign on the throne. So Jesus has a better name, and that name is Son. So that's just a by way of review. But today, we're going to look at the other four reasons that Jesus is better than angels. And we're looking at verses 6 to 14, and we should get through those today. So let's look at verse 6, and I'll begin reading. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world... 
He says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. God, we thank you once again for the opportunity to be in your word, to come to this passage again, Lord, to, to see how high and lifted up your name is, to see that you are definitely above all angels. And maybe, maybe today we don't have a problem with angel worship, but we certainly have a problem with worship of every other thing in this world. And so we just pray, Lord, that we would see you high and lifted up, Lord, that you indeed are greater than all of these things, that you would be magnified and you would receive the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's jump into it. Uh, the second point that he's going to bring up is Jesus has a better honor. A better honor. Verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. You read that right away, and you kind of, it's the point's pretty obvious right out the gate, isn't it? If Jesus is better than the, the angels because, well, he's the one being worshipped, and the one being worshipped is greater than the ones who are worshipping. That's just, that's pretty, uh, pretty obvious. It's another, not the other way around. But this is a very, very interesting passage, and this is where that whole Septuagint thing comes into play. The exact passage that's being referenced here, it's actually disputed. It could be Deuteronomy 32.43 or Psalm 97.7. I'm going to show you the first one. Deuteronomy 32.43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Now, you're probably looking at that verse right now going, and where are the angels? <laughs> nope, no mention of angels. How is that the verse? I did the same thing. You have to look up the Septuagint um, because the Septuagint adds this phrase, and let all the angels worship him. Now, that phrase added is actually found in a Qumran cave fragment. So remember the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the, in the cave of Qumran area? Okay, that fragment that we have as proof is a Septuagint fragment that has added that little uh, verse to this. So, so many think uh, that could be what this author is referring to, the angels worshiping him in this context. But also Psalm 97.7 could be it. Here's Psalm 97.7. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Now also, if you look at this, go, well, where are the angels? I still don't see angels. Well, the Septuagint renders that word gods. Worship him, all you gods, as angels. Worship him, all you angels. So it really could be that verse. It could be the other one. It could be a combination of, of both. Uh, th there's, there's the point that I want to get to here. And to do that, I want to take you a little bit ahead first. I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. So just peek ahead first. We're going to get there eventually, and I can't spend a lot of time on it because we will when we get there. But Hebrews 2.9 says this, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, 
crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, this is a strange verse. What does it mean that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels? Kevin, you just said there's God and then the angels, but how could Jesus be lower than the angels? Well, we're going to get into that when we get to chapter 2, verse 9. But let me just give you a little peek on that. You look at this, it says Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. That word made just means he was made inferior for this point. And the point is given to us in verse 9. For the suffering of death. Angels don't suffer death. Jesus was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Now, when did he suffer death? In his incarnation. When he became a man. When was Jesus lower than angels? When he chose to become like you and me. Remember I read uh, Philippians chapter 2 today? He humbled himself like a man. He became like a man. He became like one of us. Now you might look at this and say, okay, so you look at this verse. We go back to our verse and it says, let all the angels of God worship him. So that means they did not worship him before? Oh, of course they did. They worship him. They worshiped him as, as God. Absolutely, they worshiped him. From the beginning of the, the existence of angels, they worshiped their creator, which we learned was Jesus. But in his incarnation, a little bit different. He was not uh, worshiped as son. He was made a little lower than the angels. And remember, this whole passage has been about him being elevated to this position of son. The angels have not worshiped him as that as of yet. And so here they worship him as son because he's been placed back into this position of preeminence. Does that that make kind of sense? So he's been made lower than the angels because he came to suffer and die for humanity, but then he's exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now he's worshiped by angels. But this is not even the entire point the author has here. Look at that verse six, verse six, but when he again brings his firstborn into the world. Hmm, now that's interesting. And that word again is placed in the right place in the Greek. When he again brings his firstborn into the world. Well, when will that be? When will Jesus again come into the world? His second coming, his return, his return in triumph. That is when he, he comes and, and, and basically takes the inheritance that was promised in Psalm 2.7 and 2.8. The nations for his inheritance, the ends of the earth for his possessions. He'll fully possess it at his second coming. Jesus doesn't fully possess that now, right? The God of this age is still sort of running around rampant. But one day, Jesus is coming back and he takes control of this, which I'm so thankful for. But did you notice that word firstborn again? Again, when he brings the firstborn in to the world. We've looked at the meaning of the firstborn several times over the last few weeks, so I don't want to spend a long time on it. But just to reiterate, firstborn does not mean time. Firstborn does not mean chronological. Firstborn refers to position. Firstborn is the protakos. That's the word. It means the chief one. And there's all kinds of examples in the Old Testament. Jacob of Esau is a great one. Esau was firstborn. But he was not the prototokos. The prototokos was Jacob because Jacob inherited everything. He was the heir. Here is a great description of firstborn. I didn't share this with you before. Genesis 49.3. If you want to just have a great definition in your head, here it is. Genesis 49.3. This is Jacob talking about his children. Reuben, you are my firstborn. Now notice these words. My might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. 
Those, those four words are a perfect definition of firstborn. Nothing chronological. You're my strength, my might, strength, dignity, and power. Those are authority words. Those are right to rule words. They have nothing to do with chronology. Does that make sense? So here um, is Jesus again coming into the world as the rightful heir, as the one with authority to take the world. In fact, what do we mean by world? Here is another proof, this word uh, world, that it's not about him being physically, chronologically born. The word world there is not the normal uh, word used for world cosmos. This word is oikemene, oikemene. It's a very specific meaning. It means inhabited earth. Now, Jehovah Witnesses will love to take you to this verse. Go, look, look, firstborn, look, look, begotten, look, look. He was, he was being made. And they look at all these things. And on the surface, you go, oh, my gosh, how do I even? But cosmos is the inhabited world. Now, let me ask you this. If Jesus is a created being, how was he taken into an inhabited world? The creation's already there. This is him returning to the inhabited world as heir, as ruler, and that's why let all the angels of God worship him, because the Prototokos has come back to the inhabited world. Now, this happens at the end, and we looked at this a, a bit, but do you remember in Revelation 5, we looked at that uh, scroll that was in the hand, and, and John was weeping because no one was worthy to open the scroll. And the scroll is the title deed to the earth. Well, it is Jesus that opens that scroll. And did you notice what happens when, I, when he takes that scroll? Worship. Angels worship. Everyone worships. It's Revelation 5, 13 to 14. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And Jesus is the lamb. And then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They worship him because he's begun to reclaim his possession in Revelation 5. And, and you go on in Revelation 6, that's him step by step, seals being opened, taking possession, reclaiming what is rightfully his. So his whole point here, Jesus has a better name than angels because he has a better honor. He is the one worshiped and he deserves to be worshiped. He deserves to be worshiped by us. We spent time this morning singing worship to him, but did you know that your life is worship? Did you know that you live a life of worship? You worship something. People who don't come in and worship God, let me tell you, they're worshiping something. They're out there today worshiping something. You do worship something. You are created to be a worshiper. Those angels were created to worship him, and so are we. We're created to worship him. That's why one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. He has a better name. He has a better honor. But here's the third one. He has a better nature. Verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? This is a fun passage. I, I love this. Here's the basic difference between angels and Jesus right, right here. Angels are created. Remember my point one when we talked about angels? Created spiritual beings. Created. And that's what he says. Who makes his angels spirits? Now, I am going to harp on that word makes because other cults will try to do that. That word makes, that word is poieo. That word is the word that means to make or create. Do you remember I told you in verse 4 that in your King James Bible, if you have a King James Bible, mine is the new King James, so it says, verse 4, having become so much better than the angels. The King James says being made. 
And so they'll take you to that in the King James. Say, oh, look, Jesus was being made. Do you remember what I told you? That word is not poieo, and that word is ginomai, which means having become. This is the right translation. But guess where poieo is? Oh, oh, here when it refers to angels, when they're being created. See, angels are made. Angels are created. Now, I tell you these things because, listen, those people come and knock at your door, and they try to trip you up on these things. So just make little notes. I want you to have some tools in these things. That is a created being. Angels are created. Who makes his angels spirits? Wait, who's the his? Well, that refers to Christ because he was just mentioned in, 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 in prior to this in verse 6. Let all the angels of God worship him. They're his angels. So it's Christ who made the angels. We learned that back earlier, didn't we? And if Christ made the angels, well, then Christ is obviously better than the angels. So the passage here is very interesting. The one being referenced is actually right on. It's Psalm 104, verse 4. It's just giving us the creaturely nature of angels. They are, um, they are created to do his bidding. They are his ministers. That's, what's, that's what it's telling us. They are created to do whatever Christ wants them to do. But what about all that weird stuff with flame of fire business? What does it mean when it says that his angels, spirits, and his ministers of flame of fire? Well, actually, I think it gets worse than, than, than that, or not worse, interesting. You see that word spirits? That word spirits can also mean winds, can't it? Even in the New Testament, spirits can mean winds. And I actually think that's probably really his meaning. And maybe it is spirits, or maybe he's trying to get a play on words. But here's the idea. Angels are created beings. They are, they are winds. They are spirits. That means they're invisible. They're invisible, they're powerful, they move quickly. That's angelic beings. And they're also as flames of fire, we're told. Now, as flames of fire, I don't think that means they shoot around looking like fire. But where do we see them acting in fire? In judgment. They bring the fire of judgment. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, Old Testament, we see, we see angels dealing with fire. You certainly, you certainly see it in Revelation. But we looked at the example last week of those two angels that walked into Sodom. Remember that? We looked at it for the point of saying, hey, they looked like men. They inhabited men's bodies, at least. They, they looked like men to everybody because the men of the city wanted to have a carnal relationship with them. But we also know that they're angels. And those angels came for a particular purpose. In Genesis 19, 12 to 13, they're talking to Lot, and they tell him the purpose, that they're, uh, the reason that they're there. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, they're saying, we're here to destroy it, and what happens right after that? Fire and brimstone come down from heaven, and it's laid waste. The angels did that. Psalm 78, verse 49, kind of gives us an encapsulated view of their role. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger with wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. You see, angels are sent to do the bidding of their master. And often we see them coming to do judgment, to, to mete out judgment upon sinful people, and they will do the same in the future. Second Thessalonians, we were studying this week, the men uh, together and and, uh, and, and this, this popped up just when we were studying it. It wasn't even one I had looked at in preparation, so I added it today. Mark and I were talking about it. But, you know, Paul is encouraging the church. He's encouraging them because they're suffering. They're suffering, and he says to them, hey, you don't worry about it. 
because God is going to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And, and we have to remember that as well. When the church goes through tribulation, through suffering, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And that's really basically what he says. But, but this is what he says, how he's going to um, make it right. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 8. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll have rest when I come from heaven with mighty angels and flaming fire. Like, okay, <laughs> taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So angels, he comes with mighty angels and they come with flaming fire. I really, I think the point is rather simple. Angels are created beings and they do the bidding of their creator. But what about Jesus? Now look, he goes on, because that's what the angels, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. Look at verse 8. But to the Son, he says, now this, this is really good, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now just stop right there. Just, just stop right there. Did you see what it said? But to the Son, we, we know really well by now who the Son is, he says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, oh, what? God is forever and ever. Now, I think this is one of the most clear, indisputable, irrefutable statements uh, on the deity of Jesus that you will find in all of Scripture. You, you just cannot work around that. Who does he say this to? He says it to the Son. God the Father is acknowledging God the Son as God. Now, this is a direct quote from Psalm 45. 6 to 7. It's a nuptial psalm of a Hebrew king. But the language used really can only be pointing to a future fulfillment of the Davidic king. Someone who could, right, truly be on a throne forever and ever. It has to be God. So Jesus is son, we're told, but now we're told Jesus is God. And listen, many people try to say that Jesus is just a man, or he's an angel, or he's a prophet, or whatever. Years ago, we used to have a, 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 an office in city center. And right next door to where our office was was a Christadelphian church. And uh, I could tell by their talks that they would give that they didn't believe that Jesus was, was uh, the Son of God or that he was God. They believed he was a man. Well, unrelated to that, in the museum, they put a, a Bible display going on. It was a kind of history of the Bible thing. And we went in there and checked it out. It was really great. And I didn't know who put it on, but I was going by, you know, display by display. But I kept noticing one thing. Notice the man, Jesus. Notice the man, Jesus, the man, Jesus. And I noticed that everything said the man, Jesus. Nothing said God or son of God, just man, man, man. And I finally found out, oh, it's the Christadelphians who did the display. Well, naturally, you're going to support that you believe that Jesus is just simply a man. But I look at this first and how can you do it? To the son, he says, your throne, oh God, is forever and ever. The Bible makes very clear statements. They try to say, well, nowhere did Jesus make any claims to deity. I beg to differ. I'll show you a few today. Because listen, you're, you're finding this in the world. I need you to have some verses in your hip pocket. John chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things. What he had done, he had healed a man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Well, there it is right there. The Jews wanted to kill him because, oh, you think yourself, you're equal to God. Well, yeah, that's exactly what he said. They wanted to kill him for it. Remember, he said, before Abraham was, I am. What was their response to that? Pick up stones. Let's kill him again. He's, 
Like they just want to keep killing him because he kept making statements that, that, that were making himself equal with God. He said, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. What's the response? They picked up stones to stone him. They just liked stones. I know. They just kept picking them up. Jesus said it all over and over again. The apostles make claims of Jesus' deity. Remember Thomas was brought forward and he said what? He said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God to him. They'll try to tell you, oh, he was sort of swearing there. <laughs> okay, well, let's look at what John says. John writes this in 1 John five twenty, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Who is? His Son, Jesus Christ. That, it's just very clear, isn't it? John believed that Jesus was God. Very clear. Peter. Peter believed the same thing. Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You bet Peter believed Jesus was God. And certainly Paul did. Romans 9.5, he says, Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. In 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What's the mystery of godliness? Well, here it is. God was manifested in the flesh, that's Jesus, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. That can only be a description of Jesus. Titus 2.13, one more. That we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, the Bible is pretty clear. Jesus is God. Just go read the whole book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Clearly here in Hebrews, the author is saying the same thing. Jesus is God. The nature of angels is that they are created beings. They're the ministers. They do the bidding of their creator. But the nature of Christ, divine. He's God. In fact, the statement becomes even clearer here um, as dimensions of his sovereignty are described in this verse. Look, go on in verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What's the throne? Well, that's his rule. His rule is forever and ever. That's never going to end. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. What's his scepter? Well, that's his authority. That's his authority. Remember the, the, the Persian king in, in Esther? Right? He had to extend that scepter. That was a sign of his authority. It's his authority. His authority is exercised differently than the authority that's exercised in our world today. Thank God. We have governments that want to exercise their authority through cruelty and selfishness and greed and injustice and power, etc., etc., etc. Christ will exercise his authority in perfect righteousness. That's how he will exercise it, which means what? Rightly. It will always be done right, perfectly There would be a perfect balance of justice and righteousness. He will do it perfectly. We don't have that in our world. There will be one day when Jesus comes here to reign with that scepter. The kingdom under the scepter of Christ will be one of righteousness, goodness, moral virtue. Now look at verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, this, this verse is rich. It's deep. Because Jesus loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, 
He has been anointed above his companions. That's what it's saying in short. So in other words, the author is giving us the reason for Jesus' exaltation. Why has he been exalted to the right hand of the Father? Why has that even happened? Because he loved righteousness. That's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. He cared enough about righteousness to come to earth to offer it to us. He hate, hated lawlessness enough to come and die for it. So Christ died for my lawlessness that he might give me his righteousness. That's substitutionary atonement. That's what he did. He loved righteousness, but he hated lawlessness. Is that not a perfect example of righteousness? We don't, we don't like evil. We love righteousness. You cannot say, I have loved righteousness, but I also like sin. Well, you can't. You can't then love righteousness if you like sin. You, you have to love righteousness. And Jesus, he proved it through his life. When he came to earth... He never compromised. His his character was constant. It was perfect. It was always righteous. He was always pursuing righteousness. Never any variation from that. Now, who does that sound like? No change, no, no change or variation as you and I change. Perfection, righteousness. That sounds like God to me. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. If Jesus is God, he could have no variation when it came to righteousness. He had to be consistent. And you know what? We see this when we read about his life, the lover of righteousness, the hater of lawlessness. We see it in his temptation. We see it in his cleansing of the temple. We see it in his rebuke of the Pharisees. And ultimately, we see it by his death on the cross. Christians are to be the same. We're to be lovers of righteousness, haters of lawlessness. But because he loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness, this is what it says, therefore God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Well, there it is again. God, your God, anointed you. God the Father anointed him with the gladness, uh, the oil of gladness more than his companions. Now, you got to think about the Old Testament priests and prophets and kings and how the oil uh, related to them. They were always anointed with oil because it sort of, it was an anointing of ministry, appointing them for ministry, right? Appointing them for the role, if you might, might say it that way. And so certainly, he has been appointed higher than the angels because of his nature, because of who he is by nature. He is divine. You might remember when Jesus read from that scroll in Isaiah. Remember, he walked into that, that synagogue and he read from Isaiah Uh, 61, and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel. He's anointed me to to, to do these things. I've been anointed uh, to to do these things. Well, guess what? You you could say he was appointed to do those things. Here he is, and the author right here in Hebrews is saying he's anointed as king. He was appointed as king, made higher than his companions. Who are companions here? Well, companions is the word metakos. It literally means partaker or sharer. Some commentators think he's talking about men or talking about kings, maybe, because the royalty thing is a view. He's higher than, than, than kings. You could even say he's talking about believers because this word metakos is used of believers twice in chapter 3. We'll, we'll get to that. But I think because of the context, he's talking about angels. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is higher than angels. He's been exalted above certainly men, certainly kings, They're still below angels, aren't they? Angels are above them. He's been exalted above 
angels, higher than his companions. Why? Because he has a better nature. He is God. Very clear passage. Another one, um, number four, he has a better existence. Better existence, verse 10. And the Lord, sorry, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Well, there there you have it. Jesus is in, in the beginning. He's laying the foundation of the earth. This is a quote from Psalm 102. 25, 26, and 27. It's all the same there. And very, very simple. If, if he was in the beginning to create, to, to lay the foundation of the earth, then he must have existed before the beginning. That's exactly what it says. As we read in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. So he was there in the beginning, and he's going to be there in the end. That's verse 11. And they will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment. I, I love that illustration. I love it. You know, you know, fads and styles of clothing, don't they change constantly? I have outlived so many styles of clothing. You go back and look at some pictures, you'd be like, you wore that, right? Yeah, I'm going to go look at you. Don't you laugh at me? But you could, we, we outlive clothing. They get worn out. They get holes. We, we grow out of them. They grow out of style. We're outliving those things. Guess what Jesus outlives? The universe. His creation. That's what it's saying. They perish, but you remain. They all grow old like a garment. (laughs) Jesus outlives everything, the entire creation. Amazing. And verse 12, what happens? Like a cloak, you're going to fold them up. They'll be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. It's right. The universe will change. Peter tells us that, doesn't he? Do you remember those scoffers that came to him and said, oh, where's the promise of his coming? You all Christians talk about Jesus coming all the time. Where is that promise of coming? Let's really look at it. Hasn't really all, haven't all things just continued the same from the beginning of creation? Nothing has ever changed. And then he corrects them and said, oh, you forget the flood. But in 2 Peter 3.10, he responds with this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It just says, and they will be changed here in our passage. <laughs> that, they're, yeah, they're going to be changed. With fervent heat, they're going to be changed. The whole universe actually will be folded up like a cloak, this passage says. Guess what? We kind of see that in Isaiah 34, 4. Isaiah 34, 4. All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Yes, he's just going to outlived the universe and folded up like a cloak, set aside, Isaiah says, like a scroll. And guess what? That's what we see in the judgments in the book of Revelation. If it's prophesied here, we absolutely would expect to see it. And we do. In Revelation 6, 13, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. (laughs) That's an understatement to say the least. You know, you just go read beyond this to Revelation chapter 8, and the trumpets begin to sound. It's all the changing of creation. It's all being changed. It's being destroyed. But not only will it be destroyed, it'll be recreated. By whom? The one who remains. But you are the same, and your years will not fail, it says. He remains. He remains. He will be here beyond that, and he never changes. Jesus is the Alpha and he's the omega, he's the beginning, and he's the end. And even here in our, in our Hebrews 13.8, it 
tells us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It means he's not changing. He's unchanging, and he's eternal. He'll live beyond this creation. He always was and ever will be. And this is why his existence is far superior than angels. Does all that make sense? He's, his existence beyond them. But we have one more to hit, and that is a better destiny. His destiny is better. Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool? So this is the seventh Old Testament passage. It's a quote of Psalm 110.1, a psalm that's quoted quite a bit in the New Testament. Jesus even quotes this. But here we see the destiny of Christ. It is his destiny to sit at the right hand of the Father while everything is in the universe is made subject to him. The picture is that when, when a, a vanquished enemies um, come into the presence of the king, they were made to, to kind of prostrate themselves before the king, kissing his feet, and then he would sort of lift up his foot and put it upon their neck. So literally, they would be his footstool. And that was a symbol of submission and that he rules over them. And that is exactly what's going to take place. His destiny is to rule. Everything will be subject to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 27, this is sort of laid out. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. There's one exception to that. Only one will not be under his feet. Who is that? God the Father. In fact, the next verse goes on to elaborate about that. It's an amazing thing in the Godhead, this submission. There's equality, there's a oneness, and yet there's still function of roles that are different. And there is submission. And Christ submitted himself to the Father when he came. And guess what? Once everything has been subjected, he submits himself to the Father again. It's incredible. But here we see that everything will be brought under him. That's why I read Philippians 2 at the beginning. At the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every neck is going to have a foot upon it. (laughs) You can say it that way. And boy, I just love the picture we get in Revelation 19. Verse 15, now out of his mouth, this is when Jesus comes the second time, okay? Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he would strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There it is. Now let me ask you, to which of the angels did God ever say that? To which of the angels have it written on their thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords? Well, no angel. No angel has that. The destiny of Christ is to rule. What is the destiny of angels? This is is beautiful. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for, get it here, those who will inherit salvation? I just love that. What are they? They are servants. Their destiny is to serve, to serve the one who rules. That is their destiny. That is their role. That's their purpose. All angels uh, are being sent, and this idea of being sent, the force of the Greek is, is that they're perpetually being sent out. They're being sent out to help God's people. Those who not just have inherited salvation, those who will inherit salvation, they're being sent out to minister to you and to me. Now, that's incredible. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I, have, I love reading missionary stories. And there are lots of accounts. I'm just going to give you a few today. So sit back and just let me read to you. Of missionary accounts of angelic help. Help that could only be defined as angelic. And not even by their own lips, but by the ones who were coming to harm them. On a dark night about a hundred years ago, a Scottish missionary couple found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. That terror-filled night, they fell to their knees and prayed that God would protect them. Intermittent with their prayers, the missionaries heard the cries of the savages and expected them to come through the door at any moment. But as the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found that the natives were retreating into the forest. The couple's hearts soared to God. It was a day of rejoicing. The missionaries bravely continued their work. A year later, the chieftain of that tribe was converted. As the missionary spoke with him, he remembered the horror of that night, and he asked the chieftain why he and his men had not killed them. The chief replied, Who were all those men with you? The missionary answered, Why, there were no men with us. There was just my wife and myself. The chieftain began to argue with him, saying, No, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house, so we could not attack you. Now, that story is recorded in Billy Graham's book, Angels. It's one of the great tales of missionary history from John G. Patton. Here's another one. These are real accounts. Norwegian missionary Marie Monson, who served in North China, experienced the intervention of angels on several occasions. You can read about it in her autobiography, A Present Help. It was published in 1960. She tells how looting soldiers had surrounded the mission compound, but they never entered, leaving the missionaries unharmed and happily perplexed. A few days later, they learned why when a marauder explained that as they were about to enter the compound, they saw tall soldiers with shining faces on a high roof of the compound. Miss Monson said, the heathen saw them. It was a testimony to them, but they were invisible to us. It came powerfully to me and showed me how little we reckon with the Lord, the God of hosts, who sends forth his angels, mighty in strength, to do the service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation. She, she's quoting Hebrews 1.14. In 1956, during the Maui Maui uprisings in East Africa, a band of roving Maui Mauis came to the village of Lari, surrounded it. They killed every inhabitant, including women and children. There were 300 in all. Not more than three miles away was the Rift Valley Academy. It was a private school where missionary children were being educated. Immediately upon leaving the carnage of Lari, the natives came with spears, bows, and arrows, clubs, and torches to the school with violent intentions. In the darkness, lighted torches were seen coming toward the school. Soon, there was a complete ring of terrorists around the academy, cutting off all the avenues of escape. Shouts and curses could be heard coming from the Maui Mauis, and they began to advance on the school, tightening the circle, shouting louder and louder, coming closer, and then... Inexplicably, when they were close enough to throw spears, they stopped. They began retreating and soon were running into the jungle. The army was called out and fortunately captured the entire band of raiders. Later, at their trial, the leader was called to the witness stand. The judge questioned him. On this particular night, did you kill the inhabitants of Lari? Yes. Well, then why did you not complete the mission? Why didn't you attack the school? The leader of the Maui Mauis answered, We were on our way to attack and destroy all the people in the school. But as we came closer, all of a sudden, between us and the school, there were many huge men dressed in white with flaming swords, and we became afraid and ran to hide. Wow. 
I'll give you one more. Jim Marstaller recounts the, the story told to him by his uncle, Clyde. Clyde Taylor was the founder of the National Association of Evangelicals, and it was him and Jim's uh, father that were missionaries. His name was Charlie. Dr. Clyde Taylor, who married my grandfather's sister and my uncle, Charlie Marstaller, his uncle, Marstaller, were missionaries in the early 1920s to a headhunting tribe in South America. They were beside a river in the forest living in a thatched hut. One day, late in the afternoon, they noticed a dugout being paddled down the river with only one man in it. Their immediate thought was that the warriors were coming to kill them that night. The dugout could hold over 40 men, and they realized that the men were probably going to try to kill them that night. So Uncle Clyde and Charlie, they had a 22 rifle in their hut. They took it and some ammo out into the tall grass off to the side of their dwelling, and there they stayed all night in their own private prayer meeting, expecting that if attacked, they would just fire the gun into the air to frighten the headhunters. Nothing happened that night, and they had no trouble with the tribe for the rest of their term in South America. They both returned home after their term was over, and it wasn't until, get this, nine years later that Clyde was able to visit the field. One day, he encountered one of the men from the tribe who had since become a Christian, and so he asked the native about what happened that night. The former headhunter said, I remember that night. There were 44 of us, and we were coming to set fire to your hut. When we got there and surrounded the hut, we realized we could not attack because there were hundreds of men dressed in white with swords and shields standing all around your hut and even on the roof. And that's why I am a Christian now. Now, I know this all is just stories and accounts written in a, in a book of what ministering spirits did. Can I just share you one that I heard of personally? You all know that I went to the Waudani tribe in Ecuador, the tribe that was responsible for killing um, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and Roger Udary and those, those guys uh, there. And I went um, uh, there. You, you know the story. The, the, the wives and the sisters moved in, and they actually led the whole tribe to salvation. Um, but uh, uh, the, 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 the son, Steve Saint, moved back in with that tribe. They spent years with them. And, and one of the men responsible for killing his own father became a grandfather to them. So he raised his own kids among this murdering tribe that had become converted. So I went there. I got to hear firsthand their, their story. Now, this came out only when we were there, and I'm sure it's in a book at this point, but it was news to everybody involved. But one question was posed to them as to why, when the women came in, they didn't attack the women. Why did they not kill them? Because they, they, they didn't have qualms about killing women. They would kill uh, neighboring tribes' women. Uh, why didn't they kill the women? And we were astounded. The translator shared with us the, what, what their response was. They were telling us in real time. They said, well, we did. We did come with our spears. We came to kill the women. We surrounded their camp. He said, but we were afraid because of the singing men that were in the trees. Now, they're telling us this, and, and, and so Steve Saint said, okay, wait, can you, can you have them say that again? That, because of what? He, said, he asked them again in his language. He says, he says, they came, but there were singing men in the trees, and they were frightened by them, and they ran off. And Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot and those ladies went back into that tribe, and they led them all to Christ. I believe ministering spirits. Not because of the stories that I've heard from people, not because of that, because God word, God's word says they're ministering spirits, and they're sent to help us. Now, those are amazing things, and I love to read about those. And I love to hear about that. That wasn't even the point of this. The point of, of this was to show us that they do the bidding of their master, who is Christ. Christ rules, and he is better than angels. So we've seen that Jesus Christ is superior to angels in every way, haven't we? He has a better name, and that is Son. He has a better honor, all the angels worship him because he's the one to be worshipped. He has a better nature. He's God. He's divine. 
He has a better existence, eternal, un- unchanging, and he has a better destiny, and that is a ruler. And so you might be going, well, so what? I don't think much about angels, so what? What, what do I do with that information? I just want to dip my foot into chapter 2 real quick and give you the so what. Look at chapter 2. Therefore, because of all this we've heard and because of all this read, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You might be sitting here today going, well, so what? I don't believe about angels. I don't care about that. The writer here now thinks to you. He says, I'll tell you, so what? Don't neglect so great a salvation. I've just presented to you who Jesus Christ is. He's greater than anything and anyone. I don't care what you worship. I don't care what you believe in. He's greater. <laughs> I don't care what it is. He's greater, and he's worthy. And the writer is saying, now it's been presented to you. You've heard, you've heard it. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect the salvation. We're going to look more at this, chapter 2, next week. But I just leave you with that question. Jesus is greater than anything, and he's worthy of our worship. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for this book of Hebrews. What an amazing book it is. A book that magnifies your wonderful name, and we magnify you today. And Lord, I pray for any hearts in here today that maybe just haven't made that step towards you, haven't recognized that you indeed are Lord. Lord, I pray that they would not neglect the salvation that has been presented to them today. Lord, may they respond. Thank you for being ruler. Thank you for being eternal. Thank you for being God. Thank you for being son. And Lord, I thank you for being my Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.